0: Amen. You may be seated. We are turning now to God's word and we're continuing our study through 1 uh, Samuel, 1 uh, Samuel chapter 2. And, and I uh, discovered in the first service that uh, the translation that I used in my sermon is slightly different than the translation that's in the bulletin. So I'm going to read what's in the bulletin, but as I go through the sermon and refer to it, it might be slightly different. So I, I don't think you'll have too much... Problem following along. But we're in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, looking at the first 11 verses. This is the word of the Lord. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world." He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then uh, Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we love you, Lord. We, we thank you that you have preserved these ancient words, this ancient prayer for us with such power and uh, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds, that you take these words by the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would apply them uh, into our community, into our lives, into our hearts, and that you would lead us to Jesus, our Savior, and that we would receive him with faith and with obedience. And so we ask that you'd uh, be our teacher now. Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as you can see in the bulletin, uh, the, the title of our sermon today is A Woman's Power. And the reason I uh, chose that topic is because we've been studying the past few weeks uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, who is the main figure in the opening uh, chapters of 1 Samuel. And this morning we're looking at her great prayer, which is really an incredible piece of, of poetry. It's one of the most ancient pieces of Israelite poetry that we that we have and you know uh, Jewish people and Christians have preserved it for thousands of years and uh, and I think it, it all it, it's it's a beautiful piece of poetry, but it also gives us a glimpse into the heart of a woman who is a model of godly living, not just. For women, but, but I think for all of us. And the reason I chose the topic of woman's power is because of the second line of the prayer, which is, that's one of the points where my translation is different than what's in the bulletin. In verse one, where it says, my horn is exalted in the Lord, or that could be translated, my strength is exalted in the Lord. She's a woman whose strength is in the Lord. Now, the topic of a woman's power is really actually about two important topics. On one hand, it's, it's, it's about the experience of being a woman. And it's also uh, about the question, what does the Bible have to say about power? And both of those questions are in, incredibly important. As I was preparing the sermon, I actually have been talking to people over the last couple of weeks about it and realizing there's just landmines all over. And, uh, and I've wondered, is it even possible to address such an important question Only in one sermon, but um, I feel a conviction that we can't avoid challenging topics as a church, but we need to take them head on with humility and love and gentleness, but also with a devotion to God's word. And so this morning, uh, we will be talking about those two questions what does the Bible say about being a woman, and what does the Bible say about power? And uh, But I think that each of those topics needs some preliminary words, and so I'm going to spend a few minutes beforehand doing kind of an extended introduction, and then we'll turn to those two questions and see how this passage really answers those questions in really profound ways. Um, one reason this might be an important topic for us is that recently the, the number one Christian podcast has been uh, the rise and fall of, of Mars Hill, which I know many people in our church have been listening to. And if you don't know what Mars Hill was, it was a large church in Seattle that was led by a very gifted and uh, controlling uh, leader, pastor named Mark Driscoll, and uh, it had a huge impact on my generation of Christians, and uh, the church uh, collapsed almost overnight in, in 2014. And one of the pa- podcast episodes uh, is titled what we do to women, and it's a disturbing account of expectations that were put on women in the church, often from the pulpit, and often sexual expectations that were put on them, and at one point in the episode, it says that the way that Mark Driscoll consolidated his power was by regularly communicating the hierarchy of the church, children submit to their parents, wives submit to their husbands, church members to church elders, and elders submit to Jesus. Now, if you listen to that episode, you will think there was uh, the culture of that church eventually became pretty twisted, and I, th- I think it was. Uh, but there's one danger because those phrases about children obeying their parents and wives submitting to their husbands and church members submitting to their elders are not quotes from Mark Driscoll. Those are all direct quotes from the Bible. And... Uh, We have to keep straight that the dysfunction of Mars Hill was a distortion of biblical truth, and we need to not operate in reaction to a place like Mars Hill, but be shaped by the full counsel of God. Now, the the question of a woman's power, when it comes to what does the Bible say about a woman's power, is complicated. There are uh, very few generalizations that the Bible makes about the differences between women, men and women. You know, the Bible never says things like, oh, women are feelers and men are more decisive. It doesn't say things like that. But one of important generalization it does make is in the context of marriage, where it says that the woman is uh, the weaker vessel. And actually, it tells husbands that whatever this weakness is, it is worthy of honor in God's sight. And God says that if husbands don't bestow this honor, honor on their wives, that God will refuse to hear their prayers. He will shut his ears to a husband who will not bestow honor on a wife as the weaker vessel. But what this verse also tells us is that the experience of being a woman in a sinful world is one of vulnerability. To be a woman is to be hurtable. And I think our culture resents this truth. Maybe you feel some resentment at the Bible even naming this truth about being a woman. But we will not come to a wise understanding of women in power by ignoring it. Now, we are a church that is called complementarian, which means that our uh, ordained officers of elders and deacons are men. And the reason uh, for this is not only that it is uh, the teaching of the Bible, uh, but it's, lar- it's also largely been the practice of all branches of the church for 2,000 years. And so when the church for 2,000 years has been reading the Bible a certain way, it's, they probably weren't wrong. That's probably really what the Bible is saying. But uh, we are also a church where we have women using their gifts in leadership, leading our congregation in worship. The, the head of our school, one of our biggest ministries, Diana Lim, is, is uh, a, a woman. Uh, Tabitha Schwant on our staff provides a tremendous leadership and caring for women and men in our church. And we have just incredibly gifted, wise, talented women in our church. I'm just so grateful that serve in our church and out in our community in countless ways. And my hope is that we would see more and more women exercising their gifts and leadership in our church. But I think it is crucial for us as a church to think carefully about power. Power is, of course, a major topic in our culture right now. In discussions about race and sexual orientation and gender and socioeconomic status, uh, Karl Marx championed the worldview that all of history is a pattern of class tensions where the powerful have oppressed and exploited the weak. And the Bible has some sympathy with that worldview. Um, In this passage, uh, certainly there is some overlap with Karl Marx. You look at verse 4, where Hannah prays, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Or in verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. She's describing the reversal of the haves and the have-nots. And that sounds a lot like Marx. But the problem with Marx's formation, f- formulation is that if wealth and power are always used to oppress people, what will happen if you take that wealth and power and you give it to the disempowered? What will they do with it once they have it? And history has shown repeatedly revolutions where the poor overthrow an oppressive regime only to repra- replace it with a regime that's more brutal than the one they just overthrew. The Bible tells us that our flesh wants power. It doesn't matter if you are rich or poor, a man or a woman, popular or an outcast, we want power to serve ourselves. And so the key difference between Hannah's prayer and Karl Marx is that Hannah's vision is not that the poor rose up and took power from the rich. It was the Lord who brings low the proud and raises up the lowly. It is only God's power that can bring healing to the world. And if we take the power of the world, the power of our own pride, the power of our flesh into our own hands, we will only add to the destruction of the sin in the world. So if you're a woman who might feel resentment of the Bible saying that the woman is a weaker vessel, know that the great apostle Paul, who planted all the churches and wrote half the New Testament, the great leader of the early church, called himself a weak vessel. He said he preached the gospel in weakness. And he even said the gospel was about God becoming weak in Jesus Christ and dying on the cross to show that the weakness of God is more powerful than the power of men. In a world talking about power, this has to be the Christian's understanding. Jesus is calling both the rich and the poor, men and women, those in authority and those under authority, every race to repent of their craving for worldly power and to come to him in weakness. And he promises, I will clothe you with the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, as we reflect on Hannah's prayer, I want to answer two simple questions for us from this passage. What does the Bible say about being a woman? And what does the Bible say about power? And as we go through this, one of the things you're going to find is even though I say, oh, what does the Bible say about being a woman? You're going to find everything that says about being a woman applies to men. It applies to being a Christian. This is about how does a Christian understand power in their lives. And so all of these things apply to all of us. But as we're looking at a woman's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, these will be our two questions. So, first question is this. What does the Bible say about being a woman? And I'm only going to highlight a few things from this passage. Um, and if you are a woman wondering, how do, you know, how do I not grab the world's power but rely on God's power, rely on God's power even in my weakness, there are three answers I'd like to point out from this passage. Okay, the first is, there is power in being loved by Jesus. There is power in being loved by Jesus. The beginning of power is knowing Jesus' love for you personally. Now, this prayer uh, in 1 Samuel 2 comes at a particularly tender time in Hannah's life. We've been reading that she was she, uh, was she struggled with infertility for years. She would prayed for the Lord to give her a son, and she longed to be a mother. And then finally the Lord gives her a son, but it's under the condition that she doesn't get to raise the son. And the son's going to grow up with priests at the tabernacle, and it's in the midst of such emotion we see Hannah's supreme delight was that she had been so carefully loved by God. Listen to how personal the opening of her prayer is in verse one. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's this repetition of the first person pro- pro- pronoun. My heart, my strength, my mouth, I rejoice. She knows the care for her personally as an individual. And the basis of Christian power is security in the Lord. People whose hearts are at rest in the love of Jesus are powerful. They know what they believe. They know who they are. They're not anxious and reactionary to what's happening around them. Being loved bestows dignity on a person. And this is exactly what we see in Hannah and other godly women in the Bible. We all know that insecurity can swing back and forth from, you know, if you're insecure, you could be a doormat. Or you could be aggressive and demanding. And both of those things can come from a spot of insecurity. You could fluctuate back in between those two two things. And we often excuse an aggressive or demanding spirit As asserting my power. But love, when we are loved, we know we are secure. And we don't respond reactionary to what's happening around us. We respond to what is God calling me to do? Because I know who I am, I know who God's word is. And once a person knows they are loved, it leads to a second source of power. So, first, there's power in being loved by Jesus, second, there's power in prayer. And the greatest expression of reliance on God's power and not my own is prayer. And, you know, if you're a person, whether you're a man or a woman, and you say, I want more power in my life. But if you don't pray, that means that the power you're looking for is worldly power. It's not the power that God gives as a gift of grace. It's not believing that God has power and is actually working in the world. If you are not praying, the power you are looking for is the power of your flesh, your own power, or the power of the world. And, of course, the depth and beauty of Hannah's personality comes to us in the form of a prayer. This passage is a prayer. And, I, you know, one thing I want to point out in verse 1 there, you see in, in the line where she says, My mouth derides my enemies. Hannah sees that the great fight against evil around her comes through her words to the Lord, her mouth, her prayer. Prayer in worship is how Christians fight against the world. And so in, on Sunday mornings when women are leading us in prayer, they're leading us into the great battle against darkness in the world. That is how God's people fight against evil, is they sing and they pray. We come here and we, we pray by singing. We pray by confessing our sin. We pray for God to open his word to us. We pray as we come to his table. We pray for our community and for one another. And when we are praying, we're taking God's word and saying his words back to him. And that's really the third thing that we see in this passage, is that there's power in being loved, There is power in prayer, but third, there is power in the word of God. Hannah is clearly a woman who loved God's word. And one of the things I love about her prayer is how rich the theology is in it. You see what she says in verse two? She says, There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. So, this is a woman who studied the holiness of God, and she's quoting Deuteronomy. She knows Deuteronomy enough, so it's like coming out in her prayers is God's word. And she insists on the supreme sovereignty and justice of God. Listen to her words, verse six The Lord kills and brings to life, He brings down to Sheol and raises up. She knows that God is the judge. She knows that we will all stand before him one day and give an account for our life. She knows that he is the one who has ordained the day of each one of our deaths. He has the power to resurrect the dead. These are not flowery, sentimental statements about feeling God's presence all the time. She has endured years of hardship and suffering, and she's clearly meditated on the law of God. She's an intellectual, and she stands on the supremacy of God in all things. And we should also add that she rebukes people. Look at what verse three says: "Talk no more so very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed." Who's she talking to here? The proud and the arrogant. Who, frankly, are likely men in the covenant community who are proud and arrogant. And this doesn't mean she's all judgy, and you know, it's proud and arrogant people who are all judgy. What she is is what we see: is her. She loves righteousness. She loves human flourishing. She loves the worship of God. She loves seeing the poor be lifted up and their lives transformed. And uh, and what this tells us is that power comes from speaking God's word. If you want power in your life, know the word of God. Study it. Read it. Let it be humbled by it. Be convicted by it. The word of God is what created the universe. The word of God is what will save humanity. The word of God is what will judge and, and bring peace to the earth. If you want power, know the word of God. Study it every day. And what this all tells us is that the Bible says that a godly life is what is, truly pow- is true power. Righteousness is true power. And I'll tell you, you know, if you think that the, the power of God is not able to work through women in our church because our elders and deacons are men. That's just not true. I mean, take, for example, who's, who's the most famous humanitarian of the 20th century? She's a woman, Mother Teresa. She is the, the icon of humanitarian work. She had like 4,000 nuns working under her in 130 countries, Caring for the poorest of the poor. She's an incredible woman of vision and wisdom and strategy and sacrifice. And she did all of that work her whole life under the authority of a bishop who was a man. And what was that bishop's name? Who knows? I've never heard of him. No one knows his name. He's not important. And yet she said to all those poor people, the thing that they need the most, you know what they need? Is they need the gospel and they need the church they sent them to a church with male bishops, but with women who were using their gifts. And the vision of the church in the Bible is men and women side by side using their gifts for the building of God's kingdom in the earth. So if you are a woman, we need your gifts. But even more, we need Christ in you. We need God's word internalized in your mind and in your heart. And the irony is, if you begin to deny God's word because you think it disempowers women, you will be giving up the very thing that is the source of your true power, is God's word when you speak God's word and live God's word. So a Christian woman's power begins with a heart that knows she is loved by Jesus. She has seen his power at work through her prayers. And because she knows that love, she is unwavering in her devotion and obedience to the word of God. In humility, she speaks God's truth and it humbles the proud And she is a model to the Christian community of the Christian life. And her gifts are used for the building of God's kingdom. Now when you hear that, you might say, okay, I can embrace that. I embrace that vision. Christian woman. But it leaves one question. What if a woman or anyone is being mistreated? Are you telling uh, them to just... Know they're loved by Jesus to pray and to read their Bibles. Is that what they should do? Uh, Don't you need to use worldly power to stop the mistreatment? Don't you need to fight back? And um, I'm not going to be able to give a complete answer to that question, but I want to point out some things from this passage, and that leads to our second question: What does the Bible say about power? What does the Bible say about power? And God does give some people authority, you might say worldly power, and the purpose of that power is to protect and to defend the weak. Uh, Romans says that's why we have a government. The government was, is, was given the power of the sword by God to punish evildoers, that is to protect uh, people. And so if a husband physically abuses his wife, that's illegal, and he should be physically stopped from doing such evil. Um, The church is also given power by God. It's not the power of the sword. It's the power of church discipline to prevent evil uh, uh, from persisting in the church. The elders are there to protect the church as her shepherds. And the law of God in the Bible gives particular attention to protecting the vulnerable, the orphans, the widows, uh, foreigners, sojourners, immigrants, to be treated justly and with equity. But worldly power will not change the world. Even though God does give these powers to protect the weak, it's not those powers that will actually change the world. And I should say we feel some of that this weekend on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We all watched the horror of, of those acts of terrorism and said we'll never forget this is evil and something needs to be done about this. And yet, we also feel that after 20 years in Afghanistan, we see the inability of worldly power to change the world. And as we see the limits of worldly power, we have to ask what does the Bible say about power? And there's two things I want to, two answers I want to give to that. The first is that power belongs to God alone. True power belongs to God alone. And you see how Hannah says this, these amazing words in verse six the lord kills and brings to life he brings down to sheol and raises up the lord makes poor and makes rich he brings low and he exalts he raises up the poor from the dust he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the lord uh, for the pillars of the earth are the lords and on them he has set the world I mean, it's just an incredible statement from this woman. The power to heal the world only comes from God. And you might hear that and say, well, what does that mean? So we just all sit around because God's going to go change the world? It's his power? It's not our power? No. Absolutely not. Where did God say he was going to pour out his power? On Jesus' disciples. The Holy Spirit would come on the church. That he's given, and it's because God's power is at work in the world that then we can go do something because it's not our power. It's not us. It's not our wisdom. It's not our vision. It's not our intention. It is his work in the world through the body of Christ. And to follow Jesus in his ministry of word and deed, we see that Jesus' ministry in the world was one of service, which means that God gives his power for the purpose of serving others. If you have authority in the home, in the church, in business, in the government, that power is for serving others. If you have gifts, talents, wealth, opportunity, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, those are all towards, turned towards serving others. And see, so much of the world, when the world is telling us, you have power, you have power. What's the world telling us? Use that power for yourself. Use that power to make your name great. Use that power for your own glory. But uh, that's about serving yourself. It's not about the glory of God. The power that comes from God means we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And so you might say, how did Hannah become like this? How did you become to understand God's power? I mean, she lived in a brutal world in, you know, uh, three 3,000 years ago, she lives in this brutal world. How does she come to trust in the power of God? Well, that's the second answer to what does the Bible say about power, is that first, power belongs to God alone, and that second, God's power comes to us through the gospel. God's power comes into our lives through the gospel. And Hannah had this incredible vision of the future. She was a prophetess. And just listen to these words. These are incredible words in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Now what's fascinating about that verse is that Israel didn't have a king when she prayed this. Who's she talking about? This king who's going to... who, who's going to judge the ends of the earth. Well, we're going to find out in 1 Samuel that David will become an anointed king, but it's not him because his reign did not go to the ends of the earth. It's David's descendant, the greater David, Jesus, who has power and will judge the ends of the earth. And these first two chapters of 1 Samuel have a ton of parallels with the gospel of Luke. If you go read the gospel of Luke, you know, in, this, in 1 Samuel, Hannah is barren, and in Luke, Mary is a virgin. They both conceive In Samuel, the family goes up to worship at the tabernacle. In Luke, Jesus' family goes up to the temple. Uh, You know, Hannah prays this prayer here. Mary prays a prayer called the Magnificat that's very similar to this prayer. And she says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And in this passage, Samuel goes to grow uh, as a child to be raised by priests. In Luke, Jesus is left at the temple with the priests and he's debating with the priests. And these chapters are anticipating that the true holder of God's power is Jesus. Jesus is the one who God has set his love on. Jesus is the one who prays for God's power and it's unleashed in the world. It is Jesus who perfectly obeyed the word of God. He understood it and loved it. And do you know what Jesus says to his disciples in the final paragraph of the Gospel of Luke? That Gospel that that is looking back to 1 Samuel? The final paragraph, he says, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. What Jesus has promised those who believe in him and his disciples is power from on high. It's not the anxious, self-serving, aggressive, defensive, and greedy power of the world, but the power of one who's been loved, the power of one who prays, The power of God's word working through us and the power that is made perfect in weakness. You know, I'll tell you, my my family, last night, we've been reading through the book of Ephesians together at dinner. We read just one verse at a time, and then we have a discussion about the verse. And the verse last night is Ephesians 6.10, which says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And I asked my kids, What? What do you guys think of that verse? You know, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. And my, my daughter, Lucy, she's, she's 17. She's coming into womanhood. Amazing young woman. And, uh, and she said, you know, the world is constantly talking about a woman's power. And there's a lot of pressure. I've got to be all these things. I've got to do all these things. And she said, what comfort to think it's not my power. It's not my dreams. It's not my visions. It's what God is going to do through me in my weakness, and how, how much more encouraging that is to go out into the world and to be courageous and to serve God and to love others, not trusting in my own power, but trusting in God's power. That is the power of the gospel, and in the midst of all the discussions of power circling in the world, only the power of the gospel will endure. Only the power of the gospel will change the world, and only the power of the gospel can ultimately save us True power belongs to Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we uh, thank you for these words. We thank you for the truth. And in a world that is uh, speaking uh, so many things to us that entice our hearts and minds, we thank you that your word is, is so um, careful, It it understands us so deeply, it understands our world so deeply, and above all, understands you so deeply. And Lord, we pray that our church would be a place where you use our weakness, that you pour out your power in the midst of our weakness, and that many would be loved, many of the lowly would be lifted up. We would see what Hannah describes in this passage before our eyes, and we would give you the glory, because you are the one who can do it. And so, Lord, uh, shape us into that kind of community, those who are loved, those who pray, those who know your word, and that our power might be in you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.